You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams of the Superlative Podcast, and my guest today is Mr. Edward Maylon. Uh, his family is the owner of H. Moser & C. Watches. He is the CEO. Edward, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is a very special podcast because we're actually in person. <laughs> and most of the shows that we do on Superlative are remote. Yeah. And um, I maybe see someone's face on the screen, but usually I, I close my eyes and I imagine what they're doing. And, and here you are. So I hope this will be um, a little bit of a different episode. And we're in Dubai, of all places, for a, a watch show and everyone says this is not a trade show. You know, it's something different than the trade show. In fact, many people say, I don't miss trade shows. And while a lot of this is, of course, going to be about you, I figured we'd just start with some topics related to where we are. Do you miss the trade show? I miss the, um, the social aspect of the trade show and, and this excitement of, for me, a trade show is a little bit like passing an exam. <laughs> where, you know, you've been preparing for a year and then you come to that day, you don't sleep well, you know, you feel like the butterflies in your, in your stomach and then you present your things and you get the feedback. So, yeah, I miss that aspect. And then meeting the friends and the trade and, and new people. What I don't miss is like the, the pure business aspect of it. Right. But, um, but there's tons of other things that make it fun. And you and, of course, your brother and the team have always tried to approach the show with a slightly different angle. Yeah, I think we, we get inspiration. I mean, I always try to be, I mean, I, I used to go to the shows as a kid, right? When yeah. my father was, was working for AP and I remember going there and, and looking for that crazy thing, you know? Like I remember when they had this, the first hologram of, I think it was the, the concept, the uh, Royal Oak, I don't know if you remember. Oh, which yeah. Was like this, yeah. The, the watch was like floating in the air and that was the thing everybody wanted to see. And what I sometimes find boring in those shows is that to some extent, certain brands just show you the latest model that eventually you will see in the boutique. That's not why I would love as, as a consumer to go to the shows. I want to see the exceptional. I want the brands to show me the future. I want to see the things that I won't see when I go to their boutiques. And that's what we always try to do with Moser. is try to bring a little bit of, you know, something different and opinionated sometimes. Now, your background, you've, of course, had several different jobs and coming to Moser was a little <laughs> bit later in your life. But I imagine growing up in the watch family, so to say, having some experience outside the industry and then coming back, you had a lot of fresh ideas, you wanted to do things different. Maybe you can remember a little bit when you first started uh, at, at Moser, what were some of the things that you wanted to do? What were some of your hopes? And how many of those things do you think you actually were able to achieve? Oh, that's a tough, tough one. I mean, going back, what was it, nine, nine years ago, 10 years ago? Uh, I think the biggest, at that time, the biggest concern is you know, I'm, am I the right person? Can, is it, is it, is it going to be worth it? Am I going to screw it up? Or is there a chance of turning this around? I mean, we were in a terrible situation. And to be honest, I didn't know what we were going to do. I, know, I knew from, more from an industrial standpoint uh, what to fix. But you know, when it, you're talking about the brand, the, the important aspect is really the, the sex appeal of, of the brand. And that's what's definitely lacking. And that's not something that you can use frameworks and formulas to, uh, to bring to a brand. Optimizing production, reducing costs. I would say that's kind of the easy part because it's very, you know, based on you know certain practices. 
what was very difficult for me was, was to anticipate the, the rest. And of course, I had my father on the board um, who had experience with, you know, he worked at Cartier, he worked at GLC, and then he, he managed AP for many years and having a, an amazing career. And everybody was like, wow, you know, it's incredible how he brought AP to where it was at that time. And it, it went even further since. But I was like, wow, you know, how do you do that when you start from down there? And my father was like, oh, you need to do this, this, and this. And I was like, well, you know, I cannot go to retailers and tell them, impose like the same rules that AP would because they don't give a damn about Mozart. They don't need us. And I need to convince them that we have a vision, but I don't have that vision yet. So at that time he was like, you know, I, I was an engineer, so I love products. I went to business school, so I had a few frameworks, but I was like, you know, what do I tell those people? They don't know me. Do they trust me? They see me as like the son of the owner. So obviously uh, I have a lot to prove. And um, so it's difficult to answer your questions because I think at that time there were tons of ideas that were also maybe too focused on myself and uh, asking myself many questions and not having the answers. And then I think what was interesting was really to build a team for me uh, around an a basic idea, trying things, having a philosophy of, you know, let's let's try things. I mean, the worst that can happen is that we make a mistake and then we learn from it. And I think that worked pretty well for us. From pretty early, we we tried things, we provoked, we uh, we developed a certain sense of humor. We're very. Um, I love to say that a brand has, has a, a kind of a life cycle. I mean, obviously, it, it goes on forever. But I think, especially for 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 a brand that that comes back to life, you have like kind of the childhood. And then you go into your teenage years and then you become an adult. And I felt when I took over Moser, we were maybe like, like a child turning into a teenager. And we had this need of emancipation, but as a team and me as myself, probably as well. And, um, and I think that's probably why there was a good match because I needed that and probably Moser needed it as well. I want to talk about the concept of sexiness in a moment. But before, let's talk a little bit about what the company was like at the time that you entered it. There are uh, a lot of people listening, of course, uh, do know the H. Moser and T. Brand, and many that don't. Talk a little bit about where this brand came from and yeah. what the status of it was when you, you know, came to the helm about 10 years ago. So H. Moser is a, today a 193 years old brand, uh, Schaffhausen, based in Schaffhausen, amazing history, um, probably one of the most famous brands of the 19th century, run until the 1980s, uh, amazing products, uh, Great entrepreneurial uh, um, uh, history. There was a gap that where I don't see much being produced from 1980 to uh, 2005. Uh, back in 2002, a group of entrepreneurs, uh, including the great grandson of Heinrich Moser, decided to relaunch the brand, which they did in 2005, exactly uh, 200 years after the, the birth of uh, Heinrich Moser. And, uh, and it did an amazing job in, in developing great products, um, great movements, which really helped me. Afterwards, the big issue that they had is they invested in a huge, um, um, for what they were doing, a huge manufacturer, 80 people, a lot of mach machinery, uh, including hairspring production. But to be frank, it was very, very messy, not optimized. They were bleeding millions every year. Uh, to a point where after seven years in business, and some people say that the previous owners lost about $100 million, um, they decided to stop stop uh, spending so much, and they needed they needed help. And they, they looked around. Nobody from the big groups wanted to buy it. 
we as a family um, came uh, with a little bit of experience to, to look at it more from an analytical standpoint to give an, a recommendation because we didn't have the means to buy Moza. Uh, we gave them a recommendation with my father and his uh, previous, I would say, um, left and right arms at AP and gave them their feedback. They didn't like it because we were, we were very critical. Um, but to be honest, a few <laughs> months later, having no solution, they said, yeah, you're probably right, actually. And uh, they said, but would you like to implement it? And then we said, uh, yeah, why not? But, you know, we want, we want part of the, of the cake. And then we had we a ne- negotiation. And then um, we got into Moser to a point where we're now like pretty much the sole owner of the uh, H Moser. It's a very common story, especially back then, where there'd be a company that invests in a large, let's call it industrial complex to produce things. And of course, when you have a factory, you have to support all the people and the machines and factories need to produce. Why exactly uh, was it the fact that despite the amount of suppliers available in the industry, there was such a drive to create your own manufacturer to make your own stuff? Ego, probably. I think a lot of people, and that's been the, the doom of many brands, is trying to become the manufacturer because there's so much glamour around it. Um, I saw a lot of brands losing their, their soul, being like in the very sweet spot, um, you know, creating beautiful watches at the right price where there was limited competition. And then suddenly saying, oh, no, we need now to do our manufacturer movements. And then they, they move into that. But then suddenly you're competing with, with brands that have a very manufactured kind of image and you coming from, from below, it's, it's complicated. So I think at that time, my predecessors uh, were coming from manufacturers and they, they had the ambition and, and to be one of the manufacturers. I think they were obsessed with the Lange and Zöhne, uh, to be honest. And I think... Uh, <laughs> As many from are. A, yeah, and I th- if you look from a design standpoint, um, many of our models were very close at that time. From a design Aesthetically, but also uh, from a function standpoint. I mean, we had a lot of interesting uh, complications, but they were in a way very close to the, the first um, uh, Elang and Zona. So from my perspective, looking at the brand, I remember when I first started paying attention to it, there was this amazing movement and the so much one. ingenuity behind that. And the outside of the product was nice, but of course there was a lot of nice watches in the market. And then you slowly, slowly over time, started to become a little bit more playful, if you will, in the watches themselves. And then you had this marriage of this wonderful movement and this playful design. At what point did you realize that you had this successful combination? Because you definitely, there was a precipice of walking up hard, hard, hard. And then all of a sudden, you realized that there was momentum. At what point did you realize we're on to something? We're doing well. I think it's January 2015, or a little bit later, March. I can't remember when, when uh, SIHH was that year. Anyway, we had, um, I remember there was, um, we had the perpetual calendar. It's probably the movement you referred to was the perpetual one. White gold, silver dial, beautiful watch. Not working very well from a mechanical standpoint. The quality was so-so. The rela- reliability was so-so. And the design, as you said, was nice, but kind of common. I mean, uh, I did this exercise of creating the same. I'm, I'm taking the round silver dial, white gold watches from, from AP, Patek, Langlade, Vacheron, and putting the Moser next to it, and they all look the same. If you remove the logo, they look the same. But that's all we had. We didn't have a Royal Oak and a Nautilus. And at that time, you know, I couldn't like, just create a new case. I didn't have the idea of a streamliner like we have today. And uh, well, we, couldn't, we didn't sketch it, but that's a different story. 
So at that time, it was like, you know, what do we do with what we have? What's the point of buying a brand if you destroy everything that was before that? So I think the smart idea was when we launched the, the funky blue dial, which has, was a very bright electric blue with the fumet. And at the same time, putting a, uh, it's a detail, but a kudu band. So replacing, we had black and, and brown croco, and we had black or silver dyes. Pretty much that was Moser offering. And suddenly we, we changed the color of the dye, changed the color of uh, the material of the, of the strap. And then suddenly something that was kind of the watch of my grandfather became relevant. It became sexy. It became, I mean, for me, it was really like, that's, what we, that's why there's Moser. Because we can be that traditional yet sexy um, kind of brand. And then came the idea of like, but we cannot just be the product. We need to be the people. We need to be the communication. Um, I like this idea of holis, uh, holistic, holistic approach. And then, yeah, I think this product matched a little bit who we are. I mean, we are very young. Well, we were young. We're getting older slowly, but <laughs> still not that old. Uh, so we were creating products that, that we liked. And, and basically, the communication that was kind of, you know, we liked the Monty Pythons and we liked humor and we, we didn't take ourselves too seriously and wanted also, as we said before, to emancipate a little bit ourselves and say who we are, what do we believe in, um, push a little bit the establishment, and suddenly the things started coming together. And then it's a process. You try things, you make mistakes, and you experiment. And then in this way, you, you stay relevant. You surprise people, and they start looking, paying attention to you and understanding more and more who you are and what your, your brand is. I do remember there was a several-year period where your, you know, your marketing strategy was very much, like you said, to uh, push the limits, shake things up a little bit especially within the confines of the very conservative Swiss watch industry. What were some of the reactions? I've always been curious amongst your immediate colleagues. Of course, the entire world had one opinion, but internally in the Swiss watch industry, when you had your, I mean, we'll call them jokes, right? They were kind of humorous, playful things. Yeah. What were some of the responses you got? I think there was, I think for me, there's, there was, well, those who never paid attention because we're just too small. Then there were those who, I mean, there were two reactions. One were seeing us as kind of the clowns of the industry and saying like, well, you cannot do that with a luxury brand. Um, and some others uh, were like, oh, I wish we could do that, but we can't because we're too big or we're too serious. Or, um, But it was interesting. I, I think a lot of people were like looking at us a, a little bit like, yeah, they don't, uh, they don't really know what, what they're doing and why would you do that and build a luxury brand? That's that's not good for the brand. I think a lot of people didn't realize that for us it was a way to open a small window into our universe and all those people that, even if it was through a joke or through a provocation, discovered Moser, they never forgot us. And then slowly we became, not saying that we completely like the others, but maybe we're a little bit more in 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 the in line with what others do today uh, from a communication standpoint. We definitely made people discover that we are a manufacturer, we have an amazing history, we have amazing products. And those people, because they know us, yeah, they're starting really learning more and more about the brand. Talk a little bit about some of those jokes, especially for people who are listening that don't know what we're talking about. Give, give some examples, because it was, it's really important to wrap your mind around the types of playfulness and humor that you, you created. Should we start with those who work well or those who were like maybe your favorites? Failures and accomplishments. The, the, <laughs> the first one was the one that really triggered everything else. Um, oh, well, maybe two things. The first thing was not a joke, was January 2015. I don't know if you remember, there was this, um, um, this the Swiss National Bank asked 
stop begging uh, the, the Swiss bank to the euro. And suddenly, like, there was this huge drop in or increase in valuation in our currency. And it was, for us, we were, like, turning around this company that was a huge hit. This you was, know, like, like, right before SIHH. I remember yes, that year. That yeah, was yeah. 2015. Yeah. And that's when, um, you know, I was, I was at the board of directors. Um, and I remember my, my, I, I received a, a text message from my CFO and I was with the, with the board. And they're like, what's happening? I'm like, did you see this? And, and we could see really, like, the curve of the Swiss francs happening. I'm like, oh, my God, this is, is going to kill us. My father was like, ah, don't worry, you know. I mean, we have seen many other things. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, we already two years we've been fighting and we're slowly getting there. And then suddenly this, this happens. But he had been through the 70s. He had been through the quartz crisis and stuff like that. So he was used to it. I wasn't. And I was really concerned about it. And I remember I was, I was on the other side of Switzerland. I was driving back. And then I was like, you know... Um, I was listening to the Swiss radio and we, were, we could hear Mr. Um, Hayek speaking and I can't remember the head of Richemont and it was like, yeah, you know, it's going to have an impact on our profits. And I'm like, we're fucking losing money, you know? Well, I mean, why don't we talk about entrepreneurs, people who, are, who really will be in, uh, impacted and not just people who are going to make less profit? And then I stopped on the side of the road and I, and I thought, honestly, I thought, what would have Mr. Beaver done in my, my shoes at my age? And I told him that and, and I said, he would have probably, you know, Stayed his mind, and and I decided to to uh, to write uh, an open letter to the have the president of the, the Swiss National Bank, and I sent it to him, and then I sent it to a few friends in the in the media, and then suddenly the next day I woke up and it was like <laughs> people from New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the U.S. from everywhere around the world calling us like, oh, we we want your statement, we want to talk about Moser, blah blah blah. It was incredible, and I what realized. Did you say? What did you say? What was in the letter? Well, I, I explained that you know for us. You know, of course, you're trying to, to protect um, the Swiss bank from speculators. But think about entrepreneurs. Think about people like us who, you know, like are fighting for every single franc and, and to, to, to save jobs. Uh, for me, I, and I told them, I, I, I am 200 meters from the German border. I could take my, my company and move it to Germany. And, you know, a lot of people were asking themselves, what would entrepreneurs do? What would Swiss companies do? So suddenly they used us as an example of what could happen. And... Um, and yeah, it, 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 was, it, was, it was crazy. And I think it, it gave me, but also my team, a lot of confidence that, yes, we're small. Nobody potentially listens to us, but we have a voice. And if we have something to say, people will listen. A year later, we started with this campaign of, you know, like um, uh, those, you know, jokes, that, uh, as, as we mentioned. And the first one was about the, the connected watches, because that was every single journalist. And we probably talked about that at that time. We we're asking us, what do you think is going to happen with, uh, with all those connected watches? Apple is coming out with the, with the uh, Apple Watch. There's uh, Samsung working on something. This, is it the end of the Swiss watch industry? And uh, Johnny Ive was telling people that, you know, this is the end. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take over this whole industry. And I was like, no, this, is, this cannot be it. And, and as Moser, how can I express our vision, our philosophy? And people listen. And, and I always believe in symbolism. I think the best way to, to symbolize an opinion is through a product. So... I, I, uh, we decided to, uh, we had those rectangular movements, and that was June 2015. Rectangular movement that we had bought from when we were there with the company that we couldn't sell with the Henry collection at that time. So I, I, had, I remember we had a brainstorming session, and I was like, oh, we have these things. We just had the auditors saying, well, you need to, uh, to do a write-off on those movements because you're not using them. And I'm like, as a watchmaker engineer, Rectangular, rectangular movements are something you, you want. It's, it's quite rare it's cool. to have like those shaped movements. I said, hey, what can we do about it? And then same time, there was the news, there was the connected watches, and it came together to me. I was like, let's make 
a mechanical uh, smartwatch. And that's how the old campaign about the Swiss Alpwatch came. And that's the second time where we got really in the news on the map, but also not only in the business side, like we did with the letter to the to the president of the National Bank, but really to the to the to the entire watch industry. So just to clarify, this was a mechanical watch that, that was had the shape of an Apple Watch. So of, a me- of a smartwatch. Well, yes, but you know, like I can say it because I'm in the media, right? It, it looks it, funny. It had a, a strong resemblance. It had a strong it resemblance to a quite famous. Clearly, it was a mechanical watch. But it was beautiful and it was really to express that, no, as we can live together. We can get inspiration from one in the other, but we as a Swiss watch industry, we need to focus on what we do the best is high-end finishing, innovation, and, and mechanics. But it was an interesting juxtaposition of how things normally are, where especially at the time we saw the smartwatch industry borrowing heavily, heavily from the luxury watch industry. And maybe you intended it, maybe you didn't, but you flipped it upside down. Yeah. That's why I said we, we could work together. Yeah. Borrowing and, from both sides. Okay, so there was, there was the, uh, the Swiss Alps watch. Yeah. And talk about some of the other ones. I think they're, they're so entertaining and fascinating. I almost want you to list, you know, all, all the greatest hips of H. Moser and C. Uh, special, special, uh, special announcements. Yeah. So that was 2016. And then I remember coming out of that and my father saying, oh my God, but you need to do that every six months. And I'm like, yeah, thank you very much. Because we got so many, much media, media, media coverage. We couldn't have bought that, right? It was everywhere. In, uh, so much news. And then... Um, and then I remember at that time that they, they were talking about the, the law, that the law about Swiss made would change exactly one year later. And I remember coming out of that, um, of that SIHH because we always launched four days before SIHH. And we had gone through that with a little bit of stress because the lawyers were like, oh, you know, we have to be careful what you do. Next time you need to send us the, <laughs> your ideas before you go forward, especially because some of the lawyers are at the board. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> so then I was like, uh, what's the next idea? Yeah, now we need to find something. And um, at that time I was like, there was this big news about the Swiss made being changed from 50% to 60%. I'm not going to go into the details of what, what that means, but for, for me, it was kind of bullshit, right? It was, it doesn't it really, mean it's, it's a big thing, but at the same time for the Swiss watch industry, it's like, it has an impact, but not that much. So how do we, how do we express again for Moser what that means? And that's when we decided to make the most Swiss made watch ever. And and then we started playing with, with ideas. And I told my, my team, listen, we're going to do a, a watch made of, uh, of cheese. And they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, when we did the Swiss Alp watch, they, they, they thought probably that was a stupid idea. So it took us six months to produce the first one because we, the, we, they had ordered only one case. <laughs> so they didn't believe into it. And then the second time when I said in cheese, they were like, okay, well, well, we'll do it. But how? And then I had the chance to know um, the technology that uh, Richard Mill had used for uh, some of these cases. I'm not going to go into details, but uh, the idea was to use, you know, um, um, polymer and mixing them with, uh, with cheese to create the first ever cheese-made case. And that's how we created the Swiss Mad Watch to express our opinion. I always wonder, what did it smell like? It smells like nothing. Okay. Yeah, you couldn't eat with it. <laughs> I would love to see it again. I think it's in Singapore. A collector has bought it on an auction. Christie's you, made, you made one, right? Yeah, we made only one. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, just... Just the, the, the statement alone, H. Yeah. Moser and C makes a watch out of Swiss cheese. I mean, but keep that, in mind, it, it was came, the headline. It came one month later, we announced, uh, uh, earlier, we announced that we were removing the Swiss made from all our dials. That's right. We said there's no more Swiss made because for me, Swiss made is just an argument to increase your price. 
a watch should be bought based on the quality. It's not because it's been made in Switzerland. It's because it's high quality. You, know, you need to feel it. You need to, I mean, we're 100% Swiss. I don't need to, to justify myself. I think the, the Moser watches are of the best quality. Well, let's, and you need let's to feel it on the context here. Because as you were mentioning, Swiss made does not mean actually 100% Swiss made. No, by far from it. And there are companies, yourself and others, that are either entirely Swiss made or much more Swiss made that, as ironic as it sounds, didn't want to say Swiss made on there because that wasn't Swiss enough. Yes. And so we have all kinds of other terms like Swiss crafted or 100% made in Switzerland, various types of terminology. And you were one of the first to make this protest statement. It seemed quite radical at the time that a watch that was proudly made in Switzerland didn't want to say Swiss made on there. And I imagine that you had a lot of interesting feedback at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had uh, a lot of retailers saying, how do you sell a watch at that price if it doesn't say Swiss made? I'm like, do you really think like the customers are looking at the small Swiss made down there? Say, yeah, but maybe the Chinese, you know, that's what they want. I'm like, if the Chinese start looking at this, then they will buy Rolex or they will buy Patek, but they're not going to buy Moser. Because that means if the only thing they're looking at is the brand and uh, Swiss made, then we have no chance. We need to be different. And then the idea came, let's go further. Let's remove the brand. That's when a few months later, we even removed the brand from, our, from some of our logos. Same thing. People say it's impossible to sell a watch if there's no logo on it. I'm like, do you think they buy it because it says Moser? Nobody knows Moser. They will buy because it's a piece of art. They will buy because they appreciate the intrinsic value. They will buy it because they like the design and, 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 and the message that this watch is, is, is projecting. Uh, it, it was, I think it, it was more work to convince my own team than it actually ended up being convincing customers. I was actually, Not old customers. I was just going to ask you about that because it seems like a lot of your energy is spent into creating these persuasive arguments to people that you know work for you and with you to get them to do something. And it is this double-edged sword in Switzerland where you have this wonderful sense of keeping codes and keeping tradition, but sometimes that can close your mind from what's new in the future. How do you dance between these worlds of the old and the new? Well, it's, I think for me, the, the reason being of Moser is to balance those two. I love to see Moser as kind of the bridge between tradition and, and modernism. Uh, we're the bridge between a Lange and a, and a, and a Richard Mille, in a way. And it's just, you know, trying things, doing things, and staying true to those. I mean, if you look at the finishing, that's for me tradition. Uh, looking at the kind of movements we make, tradition, but bringing like, you know, the Vanta Black, moving, bringing like this spring-based perpetual calendar. This is innovation. This is modernism. And I think I love to play between those, those two worlds. And if you look at our collections, they're a reflection of that. We have the, the heritage. It's antique yet modern. We have the streamliner, very 70s, but at the same time, you wouldn't have been able to make those watches in the 70s. So it's kind of always trying to create this tension between two worlds. And, and, and per- personally, as, as I mean, I'm not the one drawing. I'm the one throwing the ideas and, and brainstorming. This is what I'm looking for, is this tension, constantly. Now, a lot of the watches today feature beautiful, bright colors. As you said, you have these fume, some people call them smoked or gradient dials and things like that. It's called the Moser dials now. Moser <laughs> dials now, of course. Um, and you even have lots of people uh, copying you now, which I guess is a form of flattery. But from a technical perspective, what are some of the challenges in getting the colors right, getting the finishes right, or going out there and discovering 
processes that allow you to have colors and aesthetics that weren't possible before. To be honest, we, got a, we made a lot of, uh, of mistakes which ended up being uh, special editions <laughs> because certain colors are very difficult to get. Uh, you know, we usually start with, with certain pantones and we say, okay, we want to be around that. And then you try. And then if you have a few seconds too long in the bath, then you, your blue might be dark blue or light blue or even gray. And, and, and then you, you try. And if you look at most of the watches, many occasions you can see that on the same model, uh, depending on the batch, the, the, the dial will be very different. Interesting. Um, Interesting. We're trying to be better uh, so that this consistency is important. But in the early models, uh, you can see a lot of variations to a point where people were like, okay, tell me, which blue is that? Because we gave names to our colors. So we had the funky blue, the midnight blue, the cosmic green, the blue lagoon, etc. Sometimes we had colors that were a little bit in between. So people would come and say, like, which one is that? Even in the team. And we're like, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, not, not easy. Yeah, so there's a lot of challenges, especially when you bring back something like the fumé, which hadn't been done for like 40 years. The machines didn't exist anymore, so we had to recreate the, the machines. Um, we started um, in the, at the origin with uh, Cadran Flukiger that belonged to Patek Philippe, and uh, eventually we had you know to expand to others, which was maybe the, which is probably the reasons why now you see so many fumés because we kind of brought the technology further outside one. Uh, sole supplier and now yeah we see a lot of fumé out there but it pushes us I, I still think we make we make the best uh, and we're going to continue to explore further to add even more value into those beautiful dyes colors are so important today probably more so than ever before as you said earlier it used to be that you had the black dial and the silver dial and maybe something else that was pretty much it right yeah. it was a <laughs> not no pun intended but it was a black and white industry and then, well, not forever, because if you go back 40 years, 50 years, you had those, those nice, like, uh, oh, coral uh, dials and orange. But in the modern sense, yeah. there was a period where you couldn't even sell a brown dial. Oh, no. And now, all of a sudden, there's no color that is off limits, yeah. you know? And you have people who, you know, a decade ago would have felt that a white watch is too feminine, who today are maybe wearing a pink watch and they're a man. Yeah. Why do you feel that colors have come in and become so popular? Was there some cultural difference? But there's such a marked shift in opinion, even in just a 10-year period. Same people who were so close-minded to one thing are now so open-minded to it. What do you think happened exactly? I think, I think the, Swiss, the, the watch industry in general is, is a few years behind fashion. And, and I, I love to, to look at, for example, um, the sneakers industry. If you look at sneakers, I mean, we probably grew up where like you had the white, you know, Stan Smith and, you know, those kind of very, it was probably very classic uh, black and white. And then suddenly you have all kinds of colors, crazy. You have the, and we see it today, like uh, it, it, the way it influenced with the drops, you see more and more collaborations. You see like those small collections, limited editions. They were way be, before us. And I think on the, in, ter, in terms of colors, I think the, 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 the industry came because the rest of the things we were buying as men and women um, we're already towards going much more towards colors. Right. And even if you, and at, at some point you still have the formal attire and still your watch had to be a little bit, you know, maybe the, the funky thing you were, you're wearing. And, and, and people are moving more and more towards that, the, the, those kind of watches that are beach to tuxedo. And I think it has to be beach to tuxedo. I like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's the big thing right now. Right. And, and, and colors belong to that world.
Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. What is it that sort of pushed the industry, not necessarily when it comes to colors, or maybe it's a consumer shift, into, we'll call it the sports lifestyle watch? I know there's certain watches very popular that fit into that, but, you know, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, and, and a brand like Moser, you begin with a very classic, traditional, we'll call it dress suit watch. And today, there's this big shift into sporty, sporty, sporty. And we even see it at a brand like Grubel Force, for example, who a couple of years ago, the idea of a Grubel Force sport watch didn't even make sense. And, and now it does. And of course, at H. Moser and C, you have a large collection now of what you would call sport watches. Um, maybe it's similar to colors, maybe it's different, but what do you think is attributable to the fact that people are now more interested in a, a sportier look versus a dressier look? Well, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's probably also linked to, um, to, to fashion, but I think even more to the idea of social, uh, life balance, you know, like now people love to, you know, work from home. This, there used to be the casual Friday. It's pretty much every day casual Friday now, you know, so <laughs> people do more, more, maybe more sport and then do, you know, it's, it's important to, to travel, to, to, to have experiences. And I think at some point those kind of watches are very, very practical. And I, I remember in the beginning when, when I started with Moser and I, I was wearing a perpetual calendar in platinum. I think it was one of the first weekend after I started as a CEO, I was in the garden with my kids and I bounced the, hit the a rock with my, my watch. I could remember the, the eyes of the watchmaker when I, when I brought it back on Monday and I was like, oh my God, I need a watch that I can use, you know, to, on the weekends and not wear a perpetual calendar platinum if I'm, in, I'm doing something with the kids. And, and I'm not the only one. I think everybody is kind of now more into, into this kind of, of lifestyle and, and watches is something that probably not everybody wants to ch- or has the ability to change every day. So suddenly, which segment took off was the sport chic. And, uh, so it's interesting what you're saying, that it really comes down to versatility. Whereas in the I past, so. you may have had different watches for different occasions, uh, similar to shoes, for example, uh, people moving forward don't want to have uncomfortable shoes. They want to have just comfortable shoes yeah. and comfortable shoes that they can wear. People are wearing sneakers with their suit now. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't see that a while ago. Yeah. What do you think that means for the dress watch industry? Is it going to be a vestige of the past? You know, because these I, days you don't have as many people wearing suits. You don't have women wearing ball gowns. Um, it seems actually quite retro now to, to wear a, a dress watch. Well, I think watch. there's always cycles. And I still think if you manage to make uh, a classic, elegant, traditional watch relevant and sexy, then people will wear it. But it doesn't have to be like the old-fashioned, traditional, elegant watch. It can be 
many things. You can have colors on it. You can have interesting materials. Um, so I, I don't think it's the end of it. Actually, we still sell more of those also because we, we want to be not only dependent on one segment. You never know what's going to happen. And Moser is also known for those kind of watches. So I think it's important to stay re relevant. And it's not because it's classic that it cannot be sexy at the same time. And again, a perpetual calendar funky blue on a kudu band is a very classic yet very sexy brand. Uh, product, sorry. I agree. Let's talk about some of the other things you're into. I think it's very interesting to know what else people like, which of course inspires the decisions in their taste. Edward, what else do you like in the world other than watches? <laughs> well, I, I personally, I'm very committed to my family. I mean, I'm flying back tonight. I have my kids, uh, four kids. Um, I love sport. I love traveling. I do quite a lot of sport. Actually, tomorrow morning, I'm going to land in Switzerland, take the train. I'm going to be in the mountains and skiing tomorrow afternoon. That's fast. Uh, with the, the, the family, I run quite a lot. Um, so really, sport has always been my thing. And, I, and, and yeah, being with the, with the family, traveling. Uh, what else do I do? I do? Um, other things that maybe you collect or items or entertainment properties that you follow? I like, I like uh, well, I like sneakers. And probably that's also the things I, uh, I've been collecting. Uh, and that's, you're going to see it next year. Um, also, we have some things coming up. Um, I heard collaboration. Uh, you heard collaborations. We have a few secrets for next year. No, what do I like uh, as well? I, 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 as a kid, I used to, um, I'm, a, I'm a guy who loves um, 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 archaeology and oh. uh, there was uh, there was a question earlier this this, this week uh, somebody asking me what would, would you have done if you hadn't gone into the Indiana Jones right kind of yeah. um, and co I was I'm collecting coins uh, old coins it was the thing since I, I'm a kid uh, and that's probably why I like also exploring the history of uh, of our brand and I'm always frustrated I'm not uh, being able to express and communicate well what Moser has been and was in, in the past. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, that's the kind of things I like. During the pandemic, of course, everyone had a forced two years of self-reflection. What did you do in that time to um, think about yourself, think about yourself as a manager, think about yourself as a creator? What are some of the personal epiphanies you may have had during the, the last two years? Well, I think like many others, I realized that, you know, the, uh, the amount of time we were traveling and, and crossing the, the world from one side to the other as a team in planes, etc., is maybe not that necessary. You can do amazing business. I mean, we grew in 2020 uh, despite being stuck in Switzerland and spending, a, I mean, my, my family hasn't seen me as much and it was amazing. I mean, I have young kids and to be able to spend so much time, actually, they, they're very surprised when I tell them I'm going four days to Dubai. They're like, what? traveling <laughs> you're not used to it anymore and um, and frankly that's I think that was that was amazing the fact that now we can we allow people to work from home at least two days a week um, the fact that you know you can you can put a lot of things in in in, uh, in relation um, to you know the amount of stress you get from certain things that are are they really that relevant no, I think it's it was a good lesson um, for me also with Obviously, having Moser take off if 24 and a little bit more just before the pandemic, uh, really accelerating, probably helped reduce that amount of, of, of stress. But definitely was kind of uh, yeah, the, the, I feel much more relaxed. I feel much more like I know where we're going and, and feel much more uh, that I trust the people. And um, yeah, I hope it continues like this.
So here's an interesting thought, and that's coming to mind. What I'm hearing is that during this time, you sort of evaluated the wisdom of moderation because too much travel, too much business, too much working, too much food and partying, these are all bad. And, and healthy living, which is something we've all been thinking about a lot, a lot, a lot, involves a degree of holding yourself back, if you will, and discipline. But at the exact same time, the industry that we're in right now has always been about excess and indulgence. How do you reconcile those two things? Or maybe how do you take the platform, which is H. Moser and C, and try to, within the context of luxury, advocate for a life of moderation and discipline, integrity, maybe living for a different purpose other than work as hard as you can right now and then drop dead tomorrow? It's difficult. I think I'm not there to impose to people the way they should live. But I think we can already on ourselves. And I think it's what's interesting. It's a lot of the reflection that we had during the COVID and especially in terms of corporate social responsibility and the way we, we decided to, to work and, you know, compensate carbon footprint and drive electric and small things like this or travel less, etc. came actually f- not just for me, but from my team. I have a very young team um, in Schaffhausen. And I think for them, they, they, they all felt like, you know, we, we, we have the privilege to live in Switzerland, uh, work in the luxury industry. Uh, you know, we want more. And uh, we want to be, you know, contributing in a way. And we started, you know, working with foundations, trying to support kids, education, stuff like that. And, and I think, uh, in a way, I, I believe that the best way to, to make things slowly change is just, I mean, you cannot tell people what they should do. I think one, two things you can do is just first behave what you think the way others should and try to be an example. And second, um, education. If you can contribute to education, that's the only way you will change the world. It's not by just paying more or making a, a recycled bracelet, whatever. It's by educating the next generation, contributing people to understand the impact that we have in many aspects. Um, so being a role model. Yeah, and helping others uh, to be as well. Well, speaking of contradictions, um, it is an interesting thing right now where there's a trend that is telling people that traveling less is potentially better for the environment, which we all agree is an important cause. Yet, this is an industry that requires a lot of in, you know, in-person, personal contact, community, being there. How do you reconcile the fact that as a brand, you need to be everywhere, but being everywhere contributes to some of these problems that the world is talking about right now? Today, I mean, we saw through, and I'm definitely not the first one to talk about it, but through the pandemic, we saw that we could be everywhere from home. We became so digital. We had a, a, a studio in, at the manufacturer with great cameras, etc. I never trained so many people around the world. I never met so many customers that I feel I know without having actually met them. And I hope they feel they, they know me. And, and it's been, you know, I didn't have to go to Dubai. And of course, it's nice sometimes to, to shake hands. Do I have to come four times to Dubai and, and, and meet the same people four times? Probably not. Like we can, you know, have a, a nice uh, discussion over Zoom or Teams or whatever um, every now and then. And I'm not saying we should stop completely to travel. I think it, we, should, we should do it in a more responsible way and a more efficient way. I mean, it's not because you're traveling the world three times a year uh, around back and forth that you're going to sell more watches. One of the things that you get to learn from traveling is you get to sample the reaction of the customer. Um, in addition to being a creator, you also have to be an observer. 
Yep. You have to watch the markets very carefully. Yep. Everyone from the retailers and distributors, yep. of course, to the end clients themselves. Yep. Here in Dubai, for example, what are the, some of the things that you're, you're looking for to learn? What are some of the things that you may have learned that you wouldn't have thought um, until you got here? To be honest, I'm, I take inspiration from everywhere. One thing that I don't want too much to do is ask people what they want. And it's more about, you know, getting feeling here and there. What we do once a year is we do a, a seminar in Switzerland. Maybe that's also reducing traveling, but where we bring people from, from all our partners from all over the world. And, and we brainstorm, we, we throw ideas, we get feedback. And, and then we, that get, that's where we get the inspiration for, for the years to come. Here in, in Dubai, I'm not specifically looking for something. I'm just waiting for that thing to come. We're not a brand that does, you know, consumer research, focus groups, etc. I think we are a brand, or, or independent brands, are brands that are, they, they like the haute couture. You don't create, you don't follow the trends, you create the trends. So you need to anticipate that. So I'm not going to look at what, what people, do they want blue watches or do they want this? No, it's more like, what do I think I can bring next? You know, I want to be, I want to stop green when people go green. I want to stop blue when people go blue, you know? Of course, we cannot do always that. We need to do blue dyes and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that's the way Moser and other independent brands contribute to this industry. As you say this, I'm imagining you back home in Switzerland, you know, maybe at a lunch or a dinner with, you know, other watch brand managers having this exact argument where you're saying, don't follow the trends. You have to invent the trends. You have to tell the consumer something that they want that they never could have imagined. And yeah, that's not the way it really is. Most of the brands are... For the big brands. No, for the Reactive big brands, no. as yeah. opposed to inventive. Um, do you ever think there's a chance of the big brands being inventive or is this really in the domain of the independent company? I think they will have to eventually. I think the, <clears throat> the shift we see slowly into the, in the market will impact a lot of the big brands. Not all of them. Those that are staying relevant, are innovative... Some, I mean, we've seen them. I mean, see like, you know, the Bulgari, like it's, there are some brands that are very, very innovative, but some that we see solely disappear. If they don't move, <laughs> they, will, they will end up disappearing. And we've seen over, if we look 100 years back, there were some amazing brands that we don't even know the name. Right. They disappeared. So probably Rolex will not disappear <laughs> in the next few years, but some big major brands might. Why? Because they don't stay relevant. Because they're not trying and taking risks and trying to, to anticipate I hear so many times, I mean, I, I, I still remember it was four years ago here in Dubai, there was a, a major brand that said, you know, I had the exact same question where I gave the answer about, I think Moser is more of a haute couture. This other brand was saying, you know, what we do is we know exactly what our customers want. We do focus group, we do consumer research. Yet that particular brand, a few months later, launched a completely new collection, which was a complete disaster. <laughs> and frankly, I was laughing. I was like, come on, how can you say, make that statement and make something like this? I think I know who you're talking about. I don't know if you know, but... Now, when it comes to the relationships with other watch brand managers, I always like to ask about that because I think that for some people, it's, it's highly cooperative and sometimes it's, it's, it's very, very combative. What type of relationships do you prefer to have with the colleague brands? And how do you facilitate positivity and peace and the spirit of cooperation? I think there's a lot of competition, but I think among independent brands, we have come to realize that we have much more to gain by working together. There's a lot of jealousy, obviously, when some are successful, the others look at them like, why, you know, I, you know, and of course you like to criticize. 
But I think we we saw through the collaboration we had with uh, with MBNF or for us the the fact that we work with the Betune on the distribution side and we did a lot of events together and and developments. We supply hairsprings to tons of of independent brands. I think people realize that there's much more to gain uh, and to. I think I believe we need to grow as an industry or as a category, being independent to, by being together and promoting it. All these campaigns that we did about the Swiss made, about criticizing uh, creativity and innovation in the watch industry, which was another of those crazy ideas we had, which backfired a little bit, <laughs> I remember was that. for us to be the advocates of independent watchmaking. What we believed were the codes about you know this bullshit Swiss made. The, the, all those brands who actually create, innovate, nothing, yet make a lot of marketing and are extremely successful. At that time, they were. We wanted to say, no, the real watch industry is like our pioneers, the, the, those amazing brands which launched like the Royal Oak in the 70s uh, or those kind of innovations at that time. They were forward thinking. These are the brands that, are, that have made the, the industry and not people that are just you know, coming on and then put a name and then have everybody... Uh, every, uh, everything done by somebody else and just market it. And as independents, we, want, we wanted to promote that because I think the paramount or the best example of what the true old watch industry, like the masters who had like the small ateliers like Breguet in Paris or, or whoever, like Graham in, in, in London, or um, they, they were masters who were working in their workshop, being creative, innovating, trying to find the new complication. And people from all over the world would travel, order their watch, wait for a year, come back and, and collect it. That's what independent watchmaking is, is. It is, I would say, the, um, the legacy of the great masters, not the big marketing that we have in between. And we really try as Moser to be the advocate of that for years. And I think people slowly start to realize that. As someone who is a product person and that loves creating new things, do you have stories about um, ideas you had that just weren't technically possible? Uh, whether it comes to materials or complications or aesthetics. I'm curious as to some of your grand ideas that when you investigated, it just couldn't be done now with technology. Maybe some of those things will soon be available, but aren't available yet. Any stories about things like that? Oh, I'm going to talk too much here again. <laughs> no, my, my, my dream is, um, is, uh, is the self-repairing, self-healing watch. I want a watch wow. that you wear, you scratch, you break, it repairs itself. I think... Uh, big issue in the watch industry is that we produce so many watches that eventually we'll need to service them, right? And it's, if you produce 10,000 watches every year, eventually every f four years, you're going to have eventually more watches coming back for servicing that actually you're producing. So we need a solution for that. And you cannot just, you know, train watchmakers. We already cannot find enough watchmakers. That's right. a big issue today. So it, it's not, not going to resolve uh, itself. So yeah, my dream is that. And technology is not there yet, but I'm... Definitely looking into what, that. What would that look like? What would a cell? Well, there are materials now that like like uh, they're more like polymer based um, that are uh, kind of we call them the, the self healing materials. So basically, if you if you make a, a scratch into those materials, they would we we uh, okay. they would close it. Okay. And kind uh, of like memory foam. Kind of bit. memory. Yeah. Um, so yeah, imagine that you could do that met with metal or with a special coating. But it seems like as a watchmaker, you know, there's these sort of like grail achievements. The watch that never needs servicing or repair. Yeah. Like what a dream that would be because that, so is, the, need, that need... is the eternity that they're looking for. That is the, the So there's the aspect of material, but there's the aspect of uh, no, no, you know, no oil, no uh, grease, the fact that um, demagnetized itself. There's so many aspects that you need to look into it, but I think there's many ways to do that. Okay, so what other than the self-healing the self watch? 
Um, what are what are the things? Um, there's the um, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting calendars out there. We have an amazing perpetual calendar. My dream yeah. is, and and we haven't found the solution yet, but is to do uh, a perpetual calendar for most of the cultures. There's you know the Chinese calendar, there's like the Persian calendar, and there's and I would love to have something that kind of brings all those cultures together. Oh wow! And I don't know ambitious. how big. Yeah, and so far it's been complicated, but uh, not giving up on that. Maybe one day. You know, Moser is known for amazing complications, but we are not known yet for creating a, a grand complication. So we need to you need to you need to pile up a few of them. And uh, just a basic idea is that with our perpetual calendar, because it's so integrated and how it's made, um, it's very difficult to combine it with other things. So. For me, that's one of the challenges at the moment is how to build on the perpetual calendar to do more than that. So now that we know that bright colors are not only, not only fashionable, but extremely fun, and as someone who tries to think of what's next, what is sort of the next frontier of color? Maybe it's in shades of color or materials or something like that, but where would you like colors to go with the H. Moser brand? You will see it in 2022. I think for me, I want to go into... Keeping this relevance, this, this very, you know, sexiness of the colors, but going into maybe more traditional ways of doing it, bring even more um, crafted value to uh, to our dolls. Interesting. That's definitely something we're looking into. So you're talking about doing it with heat. There's many things. There's many things. Yeah, it could be enamel. It could be heat. It could be many different things. And I think there's there's very a lot of traditional ways to do to 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 do. I would say more like the black and white, et cetera, but maybe bringing bright colors with those old techniques is something that I like. You know, I've always thought that'd be cool is you have the, this gradient dial. Why not make that onto the case itself? The case and the dial merge together. So you have a color that begins on the case and continues into the dial and it's one complete gradient. You know, just yeah, just thinking of crazy ideas. That's where heat like that. would, would come into the, yeah, yeah. It could be the, yeah. the best, best way because otherwise it could become very kitschy. I want to talk a little bit about product availability. Yeah. Um, it's been very, very interesting over the last couple of years to see that because the, the Rolexes of the world haven't been available, there's been this large interest in independent brands, which has been very good for business. And now you're at a point where you're starting to think very seriously about more solid distribution. I know in the United States, for example, you're taking a big step there. How do you grow the company to be international while at the same time not getting so big that you run the danger of overextending yourself, just like having the factory that you couldn't pay for? Well, you know, right now we're very, very limited in production. Uh, our capacity is around 1,500 watches. We have a very hard time finding new watchmakers. Um, I know exactly how many watches I'm going to do in 2022 because that's just what I can do, and they're already pre-sold. So for me, it's really about um, adding value uh, on the product side, but also on the production, on the on the distribution is trying to be much more or create a better environment for for the brand, a better experience, and which usually means probably less point of sales, but better point of sales, um, moving towards. I wouldn't say boutiques, might not be only boutiques, but it might. Uh, but it could be lounges, could be better environment uh, in the sense of rather than having a small window somewhere, having a larger collection with the Moser design uh, so that people understand better who we are. 
So right now it's really more, let's close a few point of sales. Let's have a better presence. Um, let's have people on the ground. That's why it's you know, primarily referring to the fact that we opened an office in New York now um, with somebody uh, running it. Uh, and we're super excited that we have now uh, somebody who is part of the family um, being based in, in New York to provide even better service. I mean, we had a great guy, Michael, uh, Michael um, taking care of the brand until now, and, and now we're integrating it. And um, I think it's a big step for the brand, and the next step will be yeah, on, the, on the front side with, with more retail. So, of course, I'm in America, in Los Angeles, and the other side of the country. What can I expect to see from H. Moser in the United States market over the next couple of years, now that you have a bigger presence there? Because my guess is that the U.S. is a particularly important market, yeah. if not the most important market. I mean, if we find a good location, probably the, the, the first boutiques, we're going to open the first boutiques in the rest of the world next year. So probably in the, the U.S. as well. Now, as an innovator and as a business person, as a watch lover, you know that there's a lot of wrong ways to make a boutique. Oh, yeah. What are some of the right ways, in your opinion, to I have, have a no watch store? I have no idea. No, I've I never don't. done a boutique. Uh, and that's we discussing with my brother. I told him, you're responsible for it because we both have no experience in retail. And we need to find the right partners. What I believe is experience. I need, we need to find an environment. I'm very jealous of you were referring to, to Max. I love their mad galleries. There's a concept. There's an idea. There's like, wow. That makes, you know, it's, 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 it's incredible. I think a lot of big brands would, would dream to have that. But we definitely are looking for, for something like this. Um, and I think for, for me, it has to be a place where people want to, to really go discover and understand the brand and not just transactional. I think it's interesting because you look at, it used to be like basically a jewelry store. And now the modern concept is more like a lounge. What I like to say is it's sort of like going to a really cool friend's living room. And hanging out. And if H. Moser and C was a person, it was in the past, <laughs> um, and you were going into his living room and hanging out, what are some of the things you would see in that room? Other than watches, of course. Um, you would see it very, it would be very modern, mo monochromatic, monomaterial, um, a little bit, um, should I say, functional. There would be a few well-designed, well-crafted accessories, you know, like, like the small bar, the, the choice of glasses, and etc. Amazing lighting. Um, because at the end of the day, I think for, for Moser in his home, those elements, the, the color elements, must be the stars of the show. And, and therefore, you don't need a lot of luxurious blah, blah around it. That's very interesting. Edward Melon, CEO of H. Moser and C. Thank you so much for speaking to me on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. My pleasure. We enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs> 